Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Dennis Bernstein has been the host of KPFA's weekday 5 p.m. Flashpoints public affairs program for the past quarter century. His investigative journalism has appeared in The Nation, The Progressive, The Village Voice, and many other publications. Dennis is also a poet in his spare time. I had a chance to sit down with Dennis and talk about how he became an investigative journalist and how his poetry fits in with his public affairs writing and radio work. What got you involved in journalism way back when? Well, I was studying police science. Uh, I wanted to be a CIA agent back in 1967 because I was determined as a working class kid that I was uh, going to join the force to turn back the clock on the communists in Vietnam. Are you serious? Really? Absolutely. Police Science State University of New York. I studied investigations with the guy who was the head of the lab uh, at the Boston Strangler case, C. Dana Kuhn. Interestingly enough, he got busted in the middle of the uh, semester there because he got caught plagiarizing his textbook (laughs) that he was having all of us buy. But I'll never forget the first day of police class. I had just gotten my hair cut. And, you know, C. Dana, he would, the way he took the attendance is he would go one by one. He'd have you stand up. He'd look you over, and then you'd sit down. So the first thing he did is told me to get a haircut. I had just gotten a haircut. I thought my hair was really short, but apparently for this fascist, it wasn't short enough. So you, you were a right-winger at the time? I don't know what I was. I don't know if you could call it. I don't know if I knew what a wing was. I come from a working-class family. My dad struggled a lot with gambling. Uh, you know, I never knew when uh, the house was going to be there or we would be evicted. So, uh, you know, I I was like out there, I was fighting to stay alive in a very tough community. Where? On Long Island, on Long Island, a place called uh, Massapequa, where, you know, where the uh, teenagers had their cars so high that they needed a forklift to get up into them. And they wrote the name of their girlfriends on the side of the car, you know, like it would go something like my meat, Colin Carroll. <laughs> okay, so you start there. How do you go from that to being, you know, on the left and wind up at WBAI? Well, now that's a good question, right? What happened in the interim is I fell in love. And I fell in love with a flaming left winger named Joan. And I started laying out my you know vision of fighting the communists and all this kind of stuff in Vietnam and how if we don't stop them they're going to be coming over the border and all that stuff he said you know what I'm not at all interested in you I don't want to you're a bore you don't have the slightest idea what you're talking about but why don't you go listen to this radio station it's called WBAI in New York and maybe you can learn something and the first thing 
I heard because I she was very <laughs> attractive, and I very much wanted to have somebody her. Her to be my girlfriend, you know. Everybody had a girlfriend those days. What year I, was that? I, that was 1965. Okay. And uh, the first person, I guess it was maybe a little bit later than that, uh, where I really started listening. But the first person I really heard on Pacifica Radio was a guy by the name of Philip Agee. And Philip Agee was a former CIA officer who blew the whistle on the company and his information led to these sure. major investigations by the church committee and uh, other committees looking into the way in which the CIA overthrew governments, killed leaders, and subverted democracy. Right. So you listen to that. Meanwhile, I guess you'd stopped wanting to be in the CIA. <laughs> I, you know, I, I actually slowly came around. I didn't want to be in any military. I definitely didn't want to go uh, to the war. And I just, I became very interested in everything that was on WBAI. And at the time, Richard, they had an incredible drama and literature program. They had live performances. They had beautiful multi-track productions. You know, I, I listened to, this is how I got my education at first. I listened to the reading of uh, Vincent Van Gogh's letters and back and forth with Theo, his brother, and learned a lot about poverty and poverty in the south of France. And I listened to the, believe it or not, I listened to the complete reading. This guy committed himself to reading the entire trilogy of Studs Lonigan on the air. That was a, a wonderful sort of working class novel by uh, James T. Farrell that came out of Chicago, nailing down the neighborhoods, the racism, the voices. And I got my political education through listening to the radio. Two quick questions. How'd you avoid the draft and how'd you go to WBAI at that point? I remember in 1967 it was, they read the lottery on the air. They literally did it live. And I got a high number. We were all sitting around. And a couple of my friends, including one named Brian Swain, got a low number, ended up going to Vietnam and was shot uh, friendly fire. I remember going to his funeral, oh. getting drunk with all our friends. And uh, realized I, I was a slow, you can imagine, it was a slow evolution, a political evolution. So what got you to... BAI, and what was your first gig there? You know, when I kept going there and thinking of excuses why they should let me work there, do stuff there, it was very hard even to volunteer at WBA. You couldn't, you know, it's sort of like KPFA. You go in the front door and who do you talk to? I, you know, I want to work here. I want to, I love what you do. Can you, can I work here? So it's not easy to so break in to Pacifica Radio. So what happened, Richard, was, again, a quirk of fate. I had by then, you know, I had dropped the war thing. I had actually graduated from college, and I started teaching in Brooklyn. I was living in Park Slope, and one day I walked down the block, and there was a bookstore there. By then I was getting into poetry, too, and I, was, I had actually taken a workshop with the great poet Muriel Rukeyser, so, you know, I was just sort of getting an education, testing everything. And there was what was called the Second Story Bookshop. So I went there. Park Slope was very much in a 
renaissance it was you know working class artists painters it was a beautiful place there were all kinds of things going on so i walk into this bookstore and i noticed that in the in the locked cabinet they had a couple of books by muriel rukeyser who was a political radical and who i was falling in love with at the time so the owner there was a a guy by the name of mike fader Mike Fader, the day before, had just got been hired to be the assistant manager at WBAI. Oh. He said to me, oh, you like Muriel Rukeyser? Are you looking for work? I said, yeah, I'm definitely looking for work. He says, you want to work? You, you want to take over this bookstore and just sit here? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll work here in this bookstore. And I used the bookstore to start a reading series, which I named the Muriel Rukeyser Reading Series. Muriel ended up loving... Not my work, because I couldn't write at all, but she really loved the spirit. She was political. I was I was getting very intense. I was asking questions about everything. So I started the Muriel Rukeyser Reading Series, yeah. which I organized at the Second Story Bookshop. This is all confirmed. I can even show you the press releases that came later. And the first reading, Muriel had written to me, sent me $500 and said, you know, I think you live around the corner from a writer named Alice Walker. She'd probably want to read. So the first reading series of the Muriel Kaiser reading series was Alice Walker, and I was reading kids' poems of, you know, I was also substituting at the time. So I was having kids write poetry. I read the kids' poems. She read her own poems. And that reading was recorded by WBAI and became the first in the Muriel Rukeyser reading series of the air on WBAI. And that's how you got in. That's how I got in. So, they came to get me. I couldn't talk my way in for nothing, but I had this great series going. And so at what point did you start, move from that to being like what you do now, which is investigative journalism? I don't know. The Rukeyser series was, series was an amazing opportunity because I just met extraordinary people. Everybody loved Muriel, and everybody who I called up and mentioned her name said yes. And some of those were pretty political folks. Audre Lorde, um, Ned O'Gorman, Ron Paget, um, some pretty significant, Robert Bly, some pretty significant people who were also political. And I was hearing a lot about politics, even as I was learning about literature and poetry. And Muriel Rukeyser, I was the luckiest person in the world because when I took the workshop, apparently she thought a lot about me. And so I began to drive her home from this workshop. And in those rides home, I began to evolve my just my consciousness by talking to her. At the time, she was president of Penn, the International Writers Association, and she was fighting to save the life of the South Korean poet Kim Chi-ha. And so I was learning about why is this poet in jail in South Korea and, you know, why he told the truth. He spoke up for poor people. He, you know, so I was learning about. And then I went with Muriel to the, if you can believe this, It was the week that the Vietnam delegation was being invited to join the United Nations. And there was a party 
on at, at a theater on the Upper West Side, and I had a chance to take Muriel to that party and meet the Vietnamese delegation and see the first time ever the Bread and Puppet, the political right. theater, the Bread and Puppet Theater. And I, it was just, it was just like unbelievable stuff. Yeah, but that doesn't say how did you make this trans- transition from and I being political? I started writing op-eds. Once I started oh. getting political, for I started writing op-eds for anybody who would accept them. At the time, there were a lot more mainstream editors who were accepting freelance, and there was a lot of wiggle room for getting your op-eds in in newspapers around the country. I started to get very good at it. Okay. I started, that's how I learned how to write. And who, who published you, remember? Well, Philadelphia Inquirer, cool. Newsday. Um, I had two op-eds in the New York Times. They had sections that were local sections. So they had a Queens and Manhattan. So you could get, if you lived in the borough, you had a better shot at getting your stuff. <laughs> at least in the local edition of the New York Times. You know, my, my, many of my pieces appeared here in the Oakland Tribune, in the San Francisco Examiner when it was really a newspaper. You know, a couple of pieces. I even got one or two in the Chronicle, San Jose Mercury News. So at that point, you were basically Denver becoming... Post. A, um, a freelance writer with the, yeah. you were getting paid for these things I was getting paid little you know they'd pay you a hundred bucks or two hundred mm-hmm. bucks you're still doing the poetry stuff I'm doing the poetry stuff at at, the, at BAI and then I went to what was called the sanctuary trial there was a major trial in Tucson Arizona where, where a dozen church workers and activists who were working with the people who were being tortured in El Salvador and Guatemala. So they were fleeing to the U.S. from U.S. foreign policy. So I decided, I, re, I, I heard about the sanctuary movement, the people who were helping these uh, torture victims uh, uh, and victims of our policy. And I began to meet some of these folks. And then I, from there, I called up Newsday and I said, I'm here at this incredible trial. Can I write for you? They said, yeah. So and I ended up having a, an amazing editor named Les Payne who won a Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of South Africa. And so my first editor was this amazing journalist. And then I started to do stories for Pacifica, radio stories and stuff like that because I already knew some of the people at BAI. Was that like for the BAI News at that point? For the BAI News. I did some for Pacifica too. Pacifica was my university. Okay. When I go on the air and I say, this is a, an invisible university in the airwaves, I mean it. It was my university. It was the way I got an education. You were doing this in New York. What prompted you to come to the West Coast then? Well, I had started a show in New York called Contragate. It was co- it was breaking coverage of the Iran Contra scandal, okay. and Contragate became a major program. In fact, we were the first. I think we were the first Pacifica show out of BAI to be syndicated nationally, and so we would make five and fifteen minute versions of our half hour morning show. It was on every day at eight o'clock in the morning, and we would make shorter versions. And I think here 
at KPFA, they played them at the 545 for maybe two years before I actually came out here and started working here. It was my memory, maybe I'm wrong, that you came out here and Flashpoint sort of started in the era of the, uh, the first Iraq war, is that correct? Well, what happened was the manager at the time, Pat Scott, yeah. um, knew my work from New York had seen some of the articles, was really impressed with the work. I was already, and I started doing, I had already started doing a half-hour show at KPFA. Um, as soon as I came in, they gave me a half-hour. It was called Need to Know. And as soon as the Gulf War broke out, Pat Scott came to me and said, you got to do, you all that kind of work you did on Iran-Contra, you got to do this kind of work. Well, I remember that there was a program called Traffic Jam on from 5 to 6, and it had different hosts. It was on from 5 to 5.45. Oh, because that's you were when the they started 50. playing that show. When the war broke out in the Gulf, I started preempting my own undercurrents, Contragate show, and doing direct reports of what was going on. Then I founded a show called Daylight in Baghdad. I don't know if you remember this, Richard, where I would yeah. come in at midnight because it was dawn in the Middle East and I would start calling people and do this show, this show at midnight, and I'd pass on the interviews to people who would work in, in the morning and whoever wanted them uh, during the rest of the day. People forget because we had the second Iraq war, we had the invasion, but in, in 1991 to two, all of the commercial mainstream media got behind this war over the invasion of Kuwait and Pacifica and KPFA was the only place you could get any information that wasn't propaganda, basically. Not the only place, there was Pacific News Service and that I was working there as well. I had started working for Sandy Close, who ultimately won a MacArthur Genius Award. Right. But Sandy was, a, was an amazing, brilliant writer, editor, and she gave me an amazing opportunity to report on a Pentagon document that we obtained. It was a document that showed what the U.S.'s intentions really were in terms of Kuwait controlling the oil, right. Iraq. There, it was a significant document. It became a major story, actually, in the Chronicle at that time, was covered all over the country because Pacific News was a syndicator. Right. So the story about this Pentagon document all over the country, that's the kind of information I brought back to my reporting on the war and that's what you know that show about the gulf war turned into flashpoints i in fact i remember being in la and getting a call from barry scott who was on the program council and she's saying well we want you to do this sh show at five o'clock what should we call it and it took me about one second to say flashpoints so i'm trying to get a little chronology here so you had been in new york then you went to L.A. first and then moved to the Bay Area? No, no, L.A. was just, I was oh, just okay. there doing some reporting. So, I was looking for an apartment the day of the Loma Prieta earthquake. <laughs> and the place started shaking. And I said, is there a big truck outside? And this guy said, that ain't no truck, buddy. <laughs> and, and so... That started you doing uh, doing flashpoints at that particular time, and you've now been doing it for 20 years. Absolutely, for 25 years. Wow. 1990. Do you ever get tired of it and want to do something else? 
Richard, every day at five o'clock in the morning, I wake up and I write poetry for three hours. I've got my second book coming out. This is a big one, visualized by the great and noted visual artist Warren Lyra. Poetry keeps me alive. Before I ever get here in the morning, I've done three or four hours of real meditation on writing and poetry. And believe me, I love the art form. First book was Special Ed Voices from a Hidden Classroom. So what do you think that does, doing that kind of work every morning in terms of maintaining your own consciousness for doing the other kind of work? It's a meditation. It keeps me sane. I hear three or four torture stories a day. I hear the most terrible stories. As you know, Richard, uh, I do some of the most scary frontline reporting that anybody can hear. And so it's a counterbalance. It's, you know, it's the heart in the morning and the brain at five. I don't know. I think the poetry and the ability to think deeply about issues and the ability to, you know how uh, you identify one cell and it tells you what's happening in the whole body. Right. So I, I, I do have a way of sort of understanding the larger issues, the driving forces, the, the emotional makeup that comes into a political story. It comes to me, it goes to my heart first and then works its way out to the blood and into the brain. Okay, so in 20 words or less, what are you getting? It's war and war and more war. It's a war economy. Military, industrial, media operation. For you as an investigative reporter, what's the single hottest topic you're working on now? As an investigative reporter? Yeah. I can't tell you. But I'm on a really good story. Let's call it as a subtitle, We Train the Killers. And when will that air, you think? Oh, it's, this is going to be a written piece first. This is a serious, in-depth investigation that I've been working on for about the last six months. So this is going to raise some hell. It'll appear somewhere significant, and then it'll come on. I'll, I'll use it on the radio. Dennis Bernstein can be heard every weekday at 5 p.m. Pacific time on Flashpoints, heard on KPFA 94.1 FM in Northern California, and online at kpfa.org where you can also hear the program's podcast. To hear Flashpoints on a regular basis, you can subscribe to the program via iTunes. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.